Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you for your support on Patreon, John Kane. As a traveling salesman during the mid-1800s, John Kane made something of a name for himself as one of many men who challenged Bismarck to a duel. Apparently, the Iron Chancellor wasn't fond of John Kane's wares. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to head. Patreon, of course. More on that later, but for now, enjoy this episode. You're listening to the 30 Years War from When Diplomacy Fails podcast, and this is episode 14. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, all to the latest episode of the 30 Years War. My name is Zach Twomley, I am your host, and it is so nice to be back. In the last episode, we looked at the surprising Habsburg negotiations, which took place on literally on the eve of the Thirty Years' War. What resulted from this was the Onate Treaty, a treaty which was designed to ensure that the two branches of the Habsburg family could cooperate and coexist. You may have been surprised by just how hard a bargainer King Philip III of Spain was, but the Spanish king's self-interest notwithstanding, what we also learned, or at least what I alluded to during the episode, was that all of these negotiations and all of these distractions for the Habsburgs wasn't very good news for Bohemia. But in that episode, we didn't look at Bohemia all that much. So this episode here is really to rectify that problem, considering the very volatile nature of Bohemian society and politics before 1617. It was only to be expected that the Habsburgs should be anxious to ensure their hereditary traditions in the divided Bohemian countryside. The Habsburg position seemed to have been guaranteed, or at the very least reinforced, with the Onate Treaty, but in the meantime, things had seriously deteriorated within the Bohemian Kingdom. It remained to be seen whether this damage would prove long-lasting, or whether Ferdinand's iron will and intractable sense of mission would be phased by that turbulent and proudly independent country and kingdom. We're going to resume our analysis of Bohemia in this episode, and we're going to place the country in its proper context on the eve of the most disruptive and destructive revolt in that kingdom's history. The third revolt, it should be said, in less than a decade for Bohemia. Could the Habsburgs restore order? Well, no, they couldn't. That's why we had the defenestration of Prague. Have you not been paying attention? But of course, the story isn't as simple as that. And in this episode, we're going to find out exactly why the efforts to reach a compromise, or why diplomacy, if you like, failed. I will now take you to Bohemia in 1617.
Explaining the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War on the 23rd of May 1618, as the Bohemians threw three Habsburg councillors out the windows of Hradshin Castle in Prague, is far, very far, from a simple task, as we have seen. It would have been far too reductionist to begin our narrative in 1618, and to allude to that Bohemian revolt as the cause of the Thirty Years' War that followed. So, we've examined several threads of the story which, when tangled together, created this long and devastating conflict. We've dwelled for some time on actors, apparently separate from Bohemia, as we established the background of Europe in the early 17th century. These threads will become important in time, but in 1618, those states which we have examined in the past, such as the Dutch, Swedish, English and French, and the men that led them, faded into the background. In their place loomed the Kingdom of Bohemia, that singularly puzzling but also fascinating kingdom which made an indelible mark on world history. We have watched the problems and challenges mount in Bohemia before 1617, as the Habsburgs managed to misjudge the situation catastrophically on several occasions, and provoke costly revolts in these lands against their restrictive policies. The most significant of these revolts was arguably that one which compelled the then Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf II, to approve the Letter of Majesty in 1609. And the subsequent efforts by Rudolf to withdraw this concession after the event provoked another revolt two years later in 1611, which came complete with an immensely expensive invasion of Bohemian lands by the Emperor's own cousin. These ruinous mistakes, one of many symptoms of the still more ruinous brothers' quarrel between Rudolf and Matthias, who would succeed him as Emperor for a little while, provided a preview of what was to come in 1618, when the Third Bohemian Revolt in less than ten years erupted, this time pulling the rest of Europe in with it. In addition to Bohemia's troubles, we've also seen the Austrian Habsburgs' inherent weaknesses become exacerbated by the entrenchment of Protestantism in their own hereditary lands. With their subjects being of a different religious persuasion to the dynasty, the Austrian Habsburgs faced an intense challenge if they wanted to effect any great taxation schemes, implement any reforms, or raise any soldiers. The estates, or assemblies as you could think of them, in Austria, Bohemia and Hungary would cooperate with the Habsburgs, but only in return for concessions which guaranteed their freedom of religion. Since the late 1590s, Archduke Ferdinand had been reversing these concessions through sheer grit and determination, and the Catholic Counter-Reformation was gathering momentum at last in these all-important lands. And yet, it was one thing to implement these schemes in Austria, lands where the Habsburg dynasty possessed traditional rights and the physically imposing presence to match. But it was quite another thing entirely to forcibly implement such policies in lands where the Habsburgs had, only in the last century or so, come into a position of predominance. And I'm talking of course about Bohemia, but also Hungary. In both of these cases, if the Counter-Reformation was to succeed, then the Habsburgs would have to tread very carefully, and to be mindful of the potential for revolt in both regions if they erred. Hungary and Bohemia contained mostly Protestant populations, and each boasted proud histories as independent kingdoms in their own right. While Habsburgs claimed the crown of both kingdoms, the idea that either crown was the hereditary right of the Habsburg family was an immensely contentious one. Both the Hungarian and Bohemian crowns were supposed to be elective, 
and the candidate for either throne would be required to affirm the religious privileges and freedoms which had been gained in previous years before they would be confirmed. Knowing what we know about Ferdinand of Styria and his single-minded determination to reverse the Reformation in his Austrian patrimony, it should come as little surprise to note that Ferdinand built up something of a reputation for himself for this very behaviour. Considering this, and considering as well the fact that Ferdinand still managed to acquire for himself the crowns of Bohemia and Hungary, we're drawn to the critical question of how. How did Ferdinand, the notorious ultra-Catholic militant, manage to persuade the Bohemians of his suitability for their crown? Furthermore, how did he manage to convince them that he would respect their right to religious differences even while this was wholly out of character for him? Answering these questions requires us to resume our analysis of the events which immediately followed the signing of the Onate Treaty in March 1617. With the blessing of Spain assured, it remained for Archduke Ferdinand to acquire the blessing of the Bohemians and Hungarians to succeed those crowns before the final succession to the office of Holy Roman Emperor was confirmed. While religious compromise may well have been the antithesis of his character, it was not outside of Ferdinand's capabilities to lie. And this simple act, lying his head off more than any other act, guaranteed Ferdinand's succession to the Bohemian throne. He swore an oath to uphold and respect the Letter of Majesty, thereby enshrining the promise of religious freedoms in the Bohemian Constitution for one more reign. Following this, Ferdinand was crowned King of Bohemia on the 29th of June 1617. His reign over Bohemia, at least according to the Bohemians, would last less than a year. Ferdinand's almighty fib was possible for two major reasons. First, the Bohemians had debated since 1614 about the possibility of electing a non-Hasburg to their throne, but they dallied and procrastinated for too long, to the point that no acceptable candidate had been found by 1617. It is not certain whether a quicker resolution of the Oney Treaty would have put this idea to bed once and for all, but regardless, the Bohemians approved of Ferdinand's candidacy after buying into his coronation oaths, which it was expected no self-respecting king of Bohemia could possibly break. Second, in line with this point, Ferdinand's conscience was cleared by this sin by the rationalising of his Jesuit confessor, who reminded Ferdinand that his soul would not be harmed by the act of lying to heretics, and that political necessity, in fact, recommended this deception. Some historians suggest that Ferdinand also made use of the threat of force to get his own way, and that with the Spanish and Austrian branches united, the Bohemians felt compelled to elect him as their king. Perhaps there was an undercurrent of intimidation running through the proceedings, but even while historians may differ in their views on why the Bohemians named Ferdinand as their king, all are unanimous in the fact that they did. While the end result may appear akin to a foregone conclusion for the Habsburg family, the reality was that Ferdinand's coronation represented not just a victory for the dynasty, but also a defeat of the anti-Habsburg plot to unseat the dynasty, not only from its bohemian appendage, but also from the imperial throne itself. That Ferdinand's advisers, and evidently Ferdinand himself, thought so little of his pledges, and consequently of the bohemian people, stands out to this day. C.V. Wedgwood's account of Ferdinand's apprehension makes for especially striking reading, as Wedgwood wrote that, Ferdinand himself hesitated. 
He did not for one moment contemplate standing by the letter of majesty, but he was uncertain whether the time was favourable for making his position clear. He was troubled in his conscience at making even a formal concession to heretics. Some consultation with his confessor convinced him that political necessity did in fact justify a deviation from absolute sincerity, and he formally guaranteed the letter of majesty. Ferdinand's insincerity was marked still further by the expectation that by conceding these empty promises now, the Habsburg dynasty could wait until the more extreme elements of Bohemian society acted out, thus giving Ferdinand the excuse he needed to clamp down on their freedoms and rights. With this goal in mind, Ferdinand set to work appointing a regency council for Bohemia, composed mostly of Catholics, despite the overwhelming Protestant inclinations of the population. Ferdinand evidently anticipated that frustration at this injustice would compel the Bohemians to resort to violence. After all, resorting to violence had been a common feature of Bohemia's recent history. Just in case they didn't get the point though, Ferdinand sought to drive it home by alienating more lands to the Catholic Church and bringing the press of the country within the parameters of state censorship. More restrictive policies in Bohemia were also to follow. After so many years of conflict, and much of it in the last decade of Habsburg rule alone, a wise advisor would surely counsel caution and toleration, lest yet another Bohemian revolt would surely flare up again. Indeed, Melchior Kleisel was just such a figure who preached toleration and care when dealing with the religious differences and anxieties of the Bohemians. Melchior Kleisel had been Emperor Matthias's confessor, and though he had enjoyed the patronage of the Jesuits, he had converted from Protestantism at an early age, so he was inculcated with a certain degree of understanding which was largely absent from his peers. Based in Vienna since the turn of the century, Melchior Kleisel made a name for himself as the cautious, careful, but phenomenally successful cardinal statesman in charge of the Counter-Reformation in that city, and he quickly rose to prominence in Emperor Rudolf's court. Just a refresher on the emperors in case you can't remember. First, we had Rudolf, who ruled for a long time and passed away in 1612, and then you had Emperor Matthias, who ruled until about 1617 or 18, and then you had Ferdinand succeeding him. Just in case all these names are a bit confusing, understandably, it's been a while since we were talking about them, so it's good to be on the same page. But in any case, having served in the position as Rudolf's principal advisor and having gathered together the representatives of the dynasty on that critical occasion in Linz in 1605, where, if you'll remember, it was decided what should be done about Emperor Rudolf's deteriorating mind, Melchior Kleisel was then well positioned to transfer his service to Emperor Matthias from 1612. As shrewd as he was perceptive, Kleisel had urged Matthias to tread carefully in Bohemia and throughout the empire, accepting the concessions made under duress and swallowing the bitter pills for the Catholic dynasty, such as the Letter of Majesty. But when Ferdinand began to look like he was going to accede to the Holy Throne and other thrones, Melchior Kleisel started to decline in power and influence. Kleisel had been a figure of great importance for the Austrian Habsburg administration for nearly two decades, not to mention he was a much-needed voice of reason during these tense times, but his policy of tolerance where necessary didn't gel with Ferdinand's own policy. In his efforts to strengthen the dynasty, Kleisel had striven to reduce the potential for division and discord in the empire by dismantling the two confessional blocks and providing a sincere platform where all could air their grievances. 
this platform being the 1613 Reichstag in Regensburg. While these efforts at achieving some kind of consensus failed, Melchior Kleisel didn't give up. He remained active in Habsburg politics right up to the point of his removal, and he played an active role in Habsburg negotiations, which constituted the Onate Treaty. But, at the same time, Kleisel was largely powerless to reverse the perception in Europe that Spanish might alone propped the Habsburgs up in Austria, or that the Austrian branch had itself entered into a terminal decline and was thus vulnerable to intrigue from abroad. Spanish power had grown, while Habsburg power in Austria, and therefore the power of the Holy Roman Emperor and his empire, had contracted. This was one impression, but it was an impression that was not helped by the fact that the emperors had consistently remained aloof from European wars since 1555, and they had preferred instead to focus on the threat from the Ottomans. Understandably, some might say. Habsburg preponderance had declined so far in the West that Austrian Habsburg envoys could no longer be found in most of Europe's major capitals. For news, they relied upon independent resources like the Fugger newsletters, and for a diplomatic representation, a special envoy was sent or the Spanish were leaned on. In Kleisel's defence, there was little certainty that the 1606 peace with the Turks would last as long as it did. This Austrian-Turkish peace treaty was renewed in 1615, and the Ottomans continued their costly conflict with Safavid Persia, which proved to be a godsend to the thoroughly distracted Habsburgs in the years to come. Incredible though it may seem to us now, these eternal enemies, the Turks and the Habsburgs, didn't go to war until the 1660s. This peace treaty in the East represented serious breathing space, but it couldn't have come at a more opportune time for the Austrian Habsburgs, even though certain underlying problems remained unresolved. Emperor Matthias's position was weakened by several years' worth of concessions to his estates, and even with the gradual tide turning thanks to the Counter-Reformation, the Austrian base was nowhere near as secure as Melchior Kleisel would have liked. Consequently, he scaled back his ambitions for Europe, and focused on husbanding resources, allies and guarantees from the Austrian and Hungarian estates. Facing this chronic weakness, it is little wonder that Kleisel recommended compromise with the Bohemians as well, since yet another expensive revolt in that pivotal kingdom was the very last thing the Austrians could afford, especially when so much depended upon the vote which that kingdom accrued when it came to deciding who the next Holy Roman Emperor would be. Melchior Kleisel had done his utmost to disarm the two confessional blocs in the years leading up to 1618, and he had made no shortage of enemies during these efforts, including Maximilian of Bavaria, who suspected that Kleisel was seeking to undermine his position. Maximilian of Bavaria's position had been in decline for some time, thanks in large part to the difficulty that the Bavarian Duke had with organising and co-opting the support of the Catholic League's contingent parts. In his most audacious act, since arguably the seizure of Donauwerth, Maximilian sent 10,000 men under the Catholic League's banners into Salzburg to depose and arrest the Archbishop who ruled there and put an end to his anti-League schemes. This was a bit embarrassing for the Bavarian Duke, though, because he had to arrest his fellow Catholic, an act which did his reputation no favours, and it demonstrated an important fact which is often lost in narratives of the origins of the Thirty Years' War. While we refer... 
you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Per to the two confessional blocks as the Evangelical Union and the Catholic League, neither grouping counted in its ranks all or even most members of the religious persuasion. Peter H. Wilson, a author of a massive tome you might be aware of called Europe's Tragedy, wrote that the princes of the empire of all religious persuasions mostly wanted to remain neutral, a mission which was to become increasingly difficult in the years to come. In peacetime, though, the choice between God or the devil was not so pronounced. Of more importance to most princes than the prospect of religious warfare was the sanctity of the imperial constitution. If all concerned princes scrambled to join the awaiting alliance blocks, then this constitution would be placed in jeopardy, since the fear persisted that, as Peter H. Wilson put it, membership would suck them into conflicts not of their concern. A valid fear when one examines what happened after the defenestration of Prague. Arguably the most significant neutral party in this confessional equation was the elector of Saxony himself the most powerful and important Protestant potentate in the Holy Roman Empire, with a vote in determining the next emperor along with the six other electors. John George, the elector of Saxony, has not fared well in historians' estimations of him, invariably cast as Beer George, the feckless drunk, or the tragically ineffectual German leader, or the wasted opportunity that precipitated the ultimate decline of Saxony's importance in Europe, John George was still important enough to receive a visit from Archduke Ferdinand in summer 1617, shortly after Ferdinand's negotiations with the Spanish had borne fruit. Having acquired the blessing of Madrid to stand for the Bohemian, Hungarian and Holy Roman crowns, there was a lot to discuss, 
as the Saxon elector, had to be enlightened as to the implications of the agreements made with Spain, but only those that Ferdinand thought would be palatable. In addition, Ferdinand and Matthias were keen to discuss something important concerning the welfare of the empire. In other words, the question of whether John George would support Ferdinand's claim to succeed Matthias as emperor. John George, loyal to the empire's constitution, but by no means devoid of ambition or cynical displays of opportunism, would be called on again by Ferdinand when the time was right. So after acquiring the tacit approval from the Saxon elector, Ferdinand and Matthias then continued to travel towards Prague, the Bohemian capital, and then to Pressburg, modern-day Bratislava, in Moravia, as Ferdinand's rights to the Kingdom of Bohemia were confirmed, and he was accepted in turn as King-designate of Bohemia and of Royal Hungary. By the time Ferdinand was confirmed as King of Bohemia on the 29th of June 1617, then, he had gone to great lengths, in league with Emperor Matthias, to lay the groundwork for a painless election to the office of Holy Roman Emperor. The public acceptance of the capitulations of his predecessors was the final step towards the realisation of his imperial coronation, which would only be actually possible once Matthias died. Ferdinand may well have believed that these concessions to heretics were of far less importance than those concessions he had made to King Philip III of Spain. We're going to talk all about King Philip III of Spain in just a sec, but first I want to enlighten you guys about something that you may or may not be aware of. There's this thing happening on the 27th of June called Intelligent Speech, and it is a online conference. Originally it was going to be a conference in person, but circumstances of the day, of course, recommend that we do not all meet together in the same place. So we're doing it online instead. From 10am to 6pm on Saturday the 27th of June, Several podcasters from all over the place will be coming together to provide several different talks and Q&As. I, in fact, am among this number of people, which includes the History of Byzantium, Jamie Redfern's numerous podcasts, the History of World War II, and many, many others besides. You can find out more about the Intelligent Speech Conference by going to intelligentspeechconference.com or clicking on the link in the description below. And you might have noticed, if you're keeping up with the Bismarck series, that I linked to this already in that Bismarck episode. But for those that are not aware, tickets are $10 until the 10th of June. But do go and check out that website of intelligencespeech.com anyway, and click the Book Now button and see how much the tickets are. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at just how much bang for your book you get. There's going to be an awful lot going on. There's going to be four different rooms, online rooms of course, where you can look at the different conferences, you can look at the different talks and stuff, and I'll be doing a Q&A at some point, not exactly sure when yet, but I will be doing a Q&A, which you can, of course, access. So if you have the time on Saturday, the 27th of June, then why not stop by? If not, thanks for putting up with these little ads. And if you have already punched your ticket and you are interested in taking part, then fantastic. Conferences like these really help us podcasters get together, and the fact that there is enough interest to actually sustain these kind of initiatives is really promising for the future. Because if they work now, imagine how they'll work in a few years' time when podcasting and history podcasting has reached even higher levels. Food for thought, but again, that's intelligentspeechconference.com. Make sure you go there and make sure you avail of this early bird price tag while you can. Anyway, 
let's continue with the episode. And it's safe to say that no one within the Habsburg dynasty, or within Europe for that matter, desired the ruinous conflagration which followed Ferdinand's terminal underestimation of the Bohemians' anxieties. Notwithstanding his lack of appetite for a third Bohemian revolt though, Ferdinand still managed to provoke it, and he did so by giving his approval for some very blatant and other more covert violations of the Letter of Majesty. The time has come now to examine exactly what Ferdinand did to provoke the Bohemian eruption, and precisely what rights and privileges he undermined along the way, which made the whole process so insulting and distasteful for the Bohemians. This king is no good, we need another, shouted the mob as they crowded into Prague's Hradshin Castle in the height of summer. No, not in May 1618, but in summer 1609. On this occasion, the Bohemians had assembled in number to demand the concessions from their king and emperor, Rudolf II, which had been promised to keep them loyal. This was the brothers' quarrel in full display, and its dire consequences were plainly felt, as Emperor Rudolf, ailing and fragile, was forced to capitulate to the Bohemians' demands. The culmination of these capitulations was the infamous Letter of Majesty that we've mentioned so often before. This was officially conceded by Rudolf on the 9th of July 1609. With his brother Matthias seizing pledges of loyalty from his other subjects, accepting these sweeping concessions were all Rudolf could do to hold on to what little authority he had left. Ever since 1605, Matthias had been aiming for his elder brother's position but Rudolf was determined to resist this ambition, whatever it cost him or his family. The cost, in fact, was very high, and although Rudolf could not have known it, the Habsburgs would continue to repay this debt for the next generation. The concession of the Letter of Majesty was the final domino of concessions to fall in the Habsburg hereditary lands, but in terms of the long-term impact it had on the continent, it was by far the most significant. The Bohemians acquired toleration of Protestant worship far beyond those concessions granted to their Austrian or Hungarian peers. Henceforth, noted Peter H. Wilson, the lords, knights and royal towns were free to choose which Christian confession to follow and each group could elect ten defensors to safeguard their rights. This latter point proved very important as it effectively created two governments in Bohemia with the new government controlled by Bohemians' aristocratic Protestants and ruling parallel to the old Habsburg administration. The Protestant Bohemians also named commanders of their own militia and took over important bastions in the country, such as Prague University, in a bid to institutionalise their church and to protect it from interference. A constitution for Bohemia was prepared by the Bohemians around the same time, but this was a step too far for the Habsburgs, who never ratified it, and neither Rudolf nor Matthias gave it their approval either. It should also be underlined that these religious concessions were not universally popular in Bohemian society, since the Bohemians wanted more than toleration of their religion, a ruling which created a level of inequality within the country, since so much confessional division existed. Indeed, religious division within Bohemia, and the option for each of the three estates to select only one religion to abide by, made further sectarianism inevitable, and it also ignored the very real corporate interest of Bohemia's businessmen, peasants and burghers, who cared less for religion than for their own material and societal advancement. 
Notwithstanding, though, the shortcomings of the Letter of Majesty, it had established a government within Bohemia, which the Habsburgs would not be able to ignore if they wanted to avoid future conflict. That said, these Bohemian representatives, the 30 defensors drawn from the three estates of the towns, knights and nobles, may have been elected by the estates, but they were not constitutionally empowered to act in the same way that the Habsburgs were. Thus, a sense of tension inevitably existed between the old Habsburg Regency government and the newer Bohemian government of the defensors, since only the former possessed the actual authority to govern the country. This authority lay in the hands of 10 regents that the Habsburgs appointed, apparently the number 10 was really popular at the time, and by 1617 a mismatch of 7 Catholics to 3 Protestants sat in the Habsburgs' name. The Catholic regents were Bohemian nationals and could not be accused of being mere creatures of the Habsburgs, but even so, the disparity between the religious makeup of the country and the picture that the Habsburgs were attempting to paint was blatant and unsettling to many Bohemians, especially once Ferdinand was crowned as their king. In Ferdinand's defence, it could be argued that a major reason why he believed he could push and provoke the Bohemians without risking a full-blown revolt was due to the mute protests of the Bohemians themselves at the time of his coronation in June 1617. Only two members of the defensors raised their voices in protest. One of these was Heinrich Matthias, Count of Thurn, a Lutheran Bohemian nobleman of Italian descent, named as commander of the Protestant militia in previous years. Count Thurn has been identified as a radical voice which only exacerbated the tense situation in his country leading Bohemia's masses to the defenestration in May 1618. Considering Thurn's extremism and favouring of violence, it is perhaps unsurprising that historians have tended to hold very negative views of him. Wedgwood, never one to pull her punches, wrote that Thurn fancied himself both a diplomat, a political leader and a general, but that he possessed few of the qualities on which he prided himself, and that he lacked tact, patience, judgment and insight. Moreover, he was covetous, overbearing and boastful, so that, although he had many supporters, he had few friends. Notwithstanding this negative picture and his negative reputation, Count Thurn would retain a pivotal role in the direction of the Bohemian policy during the revolt and during his subsequent exile, and we will certainly be seeing Count Thurn again in our narrative. So Ferdinand was now the king of Bohemia, but he didn't remain in Prague for long, since Vienna was where Matthias resided, and Ferdinand wanted to be close to him in anticipation of the imperial succession. So Ferdinand went back to Vienna, and this put distance between the king and his subjects at the worst time, since the Bohemians had grown used to having their king near at hand, and they would now have to petition the ten Habsburg regents if they wanted to discuss their concerns. Ferdinand had wasted little time in reinforcing his position in the country. While he was far from being in a position to extirpate Protestantism from Bohemia, as he had done in Styria, subtle and not-so-subtle decisions were made to undermine the Protestants in the Bohemian countryside, and as we said, to provoke them into some kind of display of limited violence, which could be easily suppressed, and then used as an excuse to undermine everything that had been agreed so far. The alienation of land to the Archbishop of Prague effectively took certain towns and villages out of the hands of those 30 defensors and placed them under the jurisdiction of the Catholic Church instead. 
Through this device, Matthias, because he was guilty of doing this too, and then Ferdinand had managed to undermine the reach of the Bohemians' authority, and the Bohemians had objected loudly to the exploitation of such loopholes. When the Protestant inhabitants of one town were arrested, and Lutheran church in another town was torn down in late 1617, the defensors made formal protests to the regents and to Ferdinand, but these protests were ignored. By this point, the Catholic regents were ignoring their Protestant peers, and hard-lying Catholics acted virtually in Ferdinand's name. From late 1617, the wheels started to come off in Bohemia. New rulings were issued which placed the printed media of Bohemia under censorship, and non-Catholics were prevented from holding any position of consequence in the Habsburg's administration. These tactics had been used extensively by Melchior Kleisel as a soft method for persuading Protestants to convert in Austria, but when this was applied by Ferdinand to Bohemia, the reaction was significantly less quiescent. In Prague on the 5th of March 1618, a meeting of the Bohemian defensors called for a redress of their grievances, referring to a long list of infringements against the Letter of Majesty perpetrated by Ferdinand's administration. Emperor Matthias was appealed to directly, as were the estates of the other provinces united under the Bohemian crown, these provinces being Moravia, Silesia and Lusatia. It was not too surprising to receive a reply in the negative, officially from Emperor Matthias, but delivered through the authority of the regents on the 21st of March. But what was shocking to the defensors was the additional demand, inserted by the normally more perceptive Kleisel, ordering the defensors to disband their assembly, and forbidding them to gather together again in such a manner. According to the Letter of Majesty, which Rudolf, Matthias and recently Ferdinand had all approved of, these 30 defensors were well within their rights to convene an assembly, and Matthias's reply was added to their list of grievances, not merely on sectarian, but also on constitutional or legislative grounds. Matters proceeded quickly from here. The defensors agreed that they should meet again on the 21st of May, and they called their supporters to return to Prague. This meeting inflamed the pre-existing passions, and the Catholic regents, who were believed to advise Matthias against accepting the Bohemian petition in March, were loudly condemned. The solution appeared to point to a symbolic, violent protest, to demonstrate the full extent of the Bohemians' grievances. What now seemed on the cards was a storming of the Hradschin castle and a forceful resting of the desired concessions, in a similar vein to what had occurred nearly a decade before when the Letter of Majesty was conceded by Rudolf. And in fact, it had also occurred 200 years before when the first defenestration of Prague had occurred. It is debatable whether the Bohemians knew all along what they intended to do on the morning of the 23rd of May, or whether, having arrived at that stuffy, tense location, emotions got the better of those assembled. Either way, in a scene immortalised many times since, two of the Catholic regents and their secretary were ejected from the windows of the Hradschin castle, and the defenestration of Prague was complete. With this great act of rebellion against the representatives of the Habsburg dynasty, the question of what to do next remained a divisive and problematic one for those bohemians that had acted. Did they intend to expel the entire Habsburg apparatus from their lands, or merely to demonstrate their anger and negotiate from a position of strength? Either way, the first shot had been fired, not in the quest for justice as the bohemians had hoped, but in the most catastrophic, 
ruinous conflict in early modern European history. Little did they know that the Bohemians had just fired the first shot of the Thirty Years' War. In this episode, we have addressed the grounds for the Bohemian Revolt, and we examined how it was that Ferdinand came to be named as king of these proud but divided people. In the next episode, we're going to connect the critical threads of this story together by examining what the anti-Hasburg movement was doing in Europe at the same time. What were the aims of this movement, who took part in it, and what did they believe was the best way to topple the Hasburg dynasty from its position of power? All of these are questions we will address, so I hope you'll join me for that as we conclude our analysis of the world which existed before the Thirty Years' War. Until then, my lovely patrons and listeners, thank you so much for listening. My name is Zach, and this has been episode 14 of the Thirty Years' War. Remember to check out the Intelligent Speech Conference if you want to book your tickets. And thanks so much again to patron John Kane for supporting this show, and of course, for challenging Bismarck to a duel. You're the best. Thanks for listening. I'll be seeing all of you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.